Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 116, recorded on July 26th of 2020. Uh, the Photo Geekery show where I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and uh, I have the pleasure of digging through the news to find the geekiest, nerdiest, sometimes ethical and legal stories uh, on a weekly basis. Sitting down, as always, with a guest host, somebody in the co-pilot seat. And this week, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Alex Lindsay here. Uh, if you oh, don't hello. know who Alex is, uh, Alex, thanks for being here. What's your elevator pitch? What, uh, what is your life in a nutshell? Well, I have to. <laughs> it's so complicated. <laughs> I, 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 when people ask me what I do, I just say I build complex live events for the web. You know, so that's mostly what I do is I figure out ways to communicate or set up conversations or build things that connect people all over the world to a given idea or product or, or other things for a variety of clients. And so that's the easiest way to say it. Uh, I've done for the last 30 years, I've done every almost every aspect of, of media production um, out there. So it's just a matter of this is what I'm doing right now. So I, ne- and, I, and I never know what it'll be tomorrow. I'll, I'll forgive you for Star Wars Episode One. I'll just put that right now. You know, I, I, I just, I only, I didn't write it. That's all I'm saying. I didn't, I didn't write it. I, I just did a, a shiny ship for a year and a half. I just did a shiny ship. I did some of the previs and then, and then the shiny ship. And, and it was pretty. Uh, I, I will Thank give you, you that. Uh, but as I'm mentioning that, I mean that you really do everything in, uh, in media, or at least you have at some point. And your skills, understanding the broadcasting industry, the hardware, the technology, the interconnectedness of it all makes you very valuable right now uh, in a pandemic time when everybody is connecting virtually. So I appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, it's, and I've just been fortunate enough to have clients that ask me to do hard things. And so I just figured out how to do the hard thing. And then I, <laughs> and then I learned new things. And it's just been, I, I can't say, I'd love to say that I had some uh, grand plan, but it's just mostly just been responding to the next challenge. And so, it, and just trying to figure it out. Um, uh, it, it never, it's never stand still. Well, I've done some of that too. Like when I get asked for, uh, I've done a lot of work on documentary films and they come to me with uh, macro photography up close. Like, we don't know if this is possible, Don, but can you do this? Yeah. And I'm not sure it is because I've never seen it done before, but I can see how the puzzle pieces fit together and yeah. let me take a stab at it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly seeing like, I, I know that piece works. I know that piece works. I know that piece works. And it's just a matter of figuring out how to assemble a, a group of things to figure out how they're going to work together. Exactly. And uh, let's let, let's get into the stories then, because uh, I I want to dig into something we talked about in previous weeks. We talked about the uh, the Canon R5 and as well as the Blackmagic uh, 12K camera, because more K seems to be on the horizon. And everybody uh, is clamoring over whether or not they need it uh, to say, okay, well, 8K is the future, 12K is the better editing, uh, you know, platform to think about as uh, as we move forward, and we need more versatility and flexibility, especially as you know, technology is improving um, at a fairly rapid pace, more uh, well, uh, faster in terms of raw processing power than in any other cyclical generation that we've had in the past. Um, which kind of brings me up to the, uh, the the R5 and the R6, where um, just as a follow-up uh, to the overheating issues that we've had in the last little while, um, it's one thing to do some tests, like just coming up with random numbers and showing them you know, what happens after X amount of time and what have you. Uh, but the real-world scenario in using a camera that might be uh, underqualified in terms of its heat dissipation where do you come down on that? Because we've seen a lot of stuff in the last week with real world tests and some interesting possible solutions that should have never been needed to begin with. I, I think that for the most part, and we're, we're going to talk about some exceptions, I think, today, <laughs> but but for the most part, I'm not a, I, 
I'm not a big fan of DSLRs as video cameras in general. Um, I think that you get what you get, you get one that specializes in what it does well. Now I built up a business. Uh, there was definitely a three, four years that all I shot on were Canon DSLRs to get the full frame look and to have those interviews. But back then there weren't any other options. So we weren't able to go out and get um, a black magic camera for $2,000 or $1,200 that would do the same thing. We definitely would have. You know, like we wouldn't have gotten an SLR. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that the, the challenge is, is that we're, you know, I don't think that, the, for instance, the Blackmagic uh, 6Ks are a particularly good still camera. They shoot stills, uh, but not very well. Mostly that doesn't give you a lot of feedback as a user. And then the, but I think that a lot of times the challenge, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the challenge is, is that uh, the form factor doesn't really, it's not really great for shooting video in general. And, and that has to do with the entire system. How do you rig it? How do you cage it? How do you put it together? Uh, what, what are the displays, the heat dissipation, um, the formats, all of those things are, are challenging on the DSLRs. And in, in my opinion, the inputs and outputs, um, all of those things are, are things that we, we find challenging on it. And so for a dedicated video, uh, system, I'm not, I'm not that, uh, excited about that line. Yeah. And it's, it's also the, the fact that, you know, we have, uh, as photographers, we kind of have to be multimediographers now, right? You have to have the, uh, the ability to shoot video, uh, if your client asks for it, even if yeah. you're not going to rig yourself up as a dedicated video shooter, uh, such as, you know, somebody like myself, I've got uh, a Lumix S1H here that I can do some very good high quality video work when my clients demand that. Uh, and it's also a camera that can do very nice still work as well. I think the, so, the, 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 the Panasonic and, and Sony are probably the two that have done the best as, as far as finding a hybrid between the two. Um, I think that Canon and Nikon have not done as much <laughs> or as well in that. Well, in that I mean, area. Canon started with the 5D Mark II and really revolutionized the way people can approach video, having never done it before and not being necessarily saying that that's their wheelhouse. And that was the impetus for what we have now with the R5, the R6, and so many other cameras that are doing really good, uh, you know, on a technical perspective, just the video, but not for a full production line of equipment. Right, and um, we went through a lot of pain. I mean, for, for those of us who, who did that shot with those Mark IIs, the those are painful. Like it would, you know, turn off all the time and runs, you know, has its timer limits. If I recall process. the very first firmware on that recorded at 24 frames per second, like 24.00 frames per second. And nothing was in sync because it should have been, you know, 23.98 because well, uh, they had no idea what they were doing. Well, the, the funny thing is the Canon makes video cameras. So the, the fact <laughs> that, that it, but it turns out what I, I mean, what I had heard, I don't know where I even heard it, but that the, still team and the video team are not allowed to talk to each other. So the still team is just making up stuff and trying to figure stuff out and, and, and reading, you know, searching the internet, you know, or whatever, doing their research while there's a video team that actually makes video cameras that wasn't talking to them at all. And so I think that when they, it, when it got out of the gate and it was really popular, they then had to figure out, well, we better figure, you know, there were lots of weird little things that anybody doing video would know. Don't do that or do, definitely do this. And the still team just didn't seem to know that, you know? Um, and so, uh, so that was the real challenge there that, that was a little bit of a, a hard, but a lot of us used it because we got that short depth of field and we got better light sensitivity and we got a lot of other things that we weren't able to get out of any camera at the time. But again, I think that the market, thanks to Red, thanks to Black Magic, thanks to a lot of other folks, has, has become a lot more uh, um, accessible than it was uh, 10 years ago. 
Right. And I, yeah, I saw, just came across my radar this morning after I put my show notes together uh, uh, on uh, News Shooter. Uh, Tilta is building a cooling kit for the EOS R5 uh, along with a cage that they've designed. And it's got a um, an active fan that once the screen is completely flipped out, fits perfectly in the little docking area where the screen would normally be with uh, a heat sink and a fan and something that I'm thinking, okay, it looks really nice. And anybody that's going to possibly shoot on an R5 for video will want this, but they shouldn't need to get that from a third-party manufacturer, especially right out of the gate. Followed up with a, uh, a tweet that I saw from uh, Gerald Undone this morning. Uh, he's, he tweeted it last night, but uh, more bad news about the R5. Every minute uh, that you spend taking photos with it reduces the time that you can shoot high-quality video. Today, I shot an hour in 30-degree summer weather. By the end of it, I switched to video, and the overheat warning was on and zero minutes remaining due to the heat, even though he had never been shooting video on that. And so uh, choose your battles, right? Choose choose the gear that's going to be best for the job, and just because the spec sheet says something doesn't mean it's actually really worth that in the end. Yeah, I mean, heat is, has just been a, a general problem, and, and these little bodies without fans or without the proper fan, you know, um, process is just, they're always going to have trouble, especially out on a warmer day. So I think that, um, you are going to see more of these retrofits that, that try to make it work. And again, I, I, I wonder whether that's the, the best, uh, camera for shooting video. Now I do think that, uh, again, I think that Panasonic and Sony have done a better job at getting at kind of, uh, straddling the two needs that are, that are required. And quickly before we go on to our uh, our, our stories uh, du jour, but um, what are your thoughts on the Blackmagic 12K camera and its usefulness in society today? I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting camera. Um, I think that it's a great 12K camera. I, 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 I'm a little concerned about the, as I, as I slowly understood it a little bit better, um, the oversampling. I, I was expecting oversampling. So if you shoot 4K, you're getting a 12K capture that's then sampled down to 4k right or, or if you're shooting 8k but you're not so the, re, the redesign of their chip is so that they can literally subsample subsample the full sensor of the chip to get that resolution and so what that means is, is that you're you're not really getting oversampled version of the 12k if you go to 8k you're just getting every other pixel or not it's not every other pixel but it's it's building that array in a slightly different way so that um, so that the camera can process that really quickly and easily and, and effectively. But the problem really is, is that, is that I'm, what I really want, what, what are my maximum resolution is I want oftentimes to have half of that where it means it's oversampled. So I'm, I'm, um, you know, better anti-aliasing, smoother image, less grain, all yeah, those things. Uh, no more array, right? Yeah. yeah you, so, so, which I, if, I, if you're like going from 12 down to four or even full HD, if you would ever want to record in that, um, it's. Like if you're going from 12 to four or like any of those neighbors, um, we don't know is, is more going to be a huge problem because I, that's a, that's a big jump. They say it's not, we asked them directly in our office hours uh, show. So, so we asked them directly what, and they, and the, the, a lot of attention has been put to aliasing in Moray. Um, but we won't know until we actually see it. Yeah. I think that for me, um, I'm excited about the camera in the sense that I think 12 K is really interesting. I think that, uh, eventually 120, if they can get to 120 frames per second, I thought the 110 frames a second was a little odd. Um, and I, there's rumors that it's going to go to 120. We didn't ask them, ended up asking them directly about it, but it, it does, um, the 110 is odd because with 120, you 24 frames a second, 30 and 60 all are evenly divisible. So the first time that they're all evenly divisible into 120. So theoretically you could get into a, 
a pattern of shooting 120 frames a second, subsampling down to the frame rate that you want um, in your export, and um, using the extra frames as interpolation for motion blur re- recreation, which we've done in the past a lot. I don't know if it'd be the answer for everything, but it, it could be an interesting solution for a lot of um, production needs. Uh, so I thought 110, though, kind of defeats a lot of that. And so um, so anyway, so so 120, I'm hoping that they're going to get to the, uh, again, the, the I think that I would view this as a 12K camera, and then I would capture everything at 12K, and then I would sub, I would sample it down in software, which Blackmagic tends to t- talk around, but they do say it'll be different if you oversample and then and, you know and, and bring it down on your software versus what the camera's doing. And to me, I thought that was a nice way of saying that it won't be as good. <laughs> so do, if you do, do it on you the camera. know? Do you know any reason why they went with CFast cards instead of CF Express? I don't. I think it, I think some of it has to do with my only guess is that, that we might have. Uh, some of it has to do with uh, people already have a lot of CFast cards and CFast cards are really expensive. And so you're talking about, um, you know, changing those changes, the body design. It also changes all the investment that people have already put into the memory cards that they already have. So I think that that might be yeah, it. And enough. most of us, the behavior that most of us have is the CFast card I have in my camera is a backup. So I have a CFast card and I'm maybe a one or two backups of CFast cards, but generally I'm, I'm recording to a T5. So I'm using the USB-C out to record to a T5, it's just way easier and way better. This is on my 6K. So um, right. so I think that an external recorder is really the right solution for most of this. Um, you're not going to, especially at the resolutions we're talking about, um, I think you're going to be much happier with, a, with an external um, uh, recorder. Well said. And I did find an interesting, I was digging through my, uh, my archives and I found this fun little lens. Uh, this would be oh, fun yeah. to play with on a, uh, on a 12 K oh, camera. Yeah. This is a stereo 3d macro lens. Who made um, that? um, this is, uh, this is, they made like eight of them and this is one of them, oh, uh, Deweus, uh, out of the Netherlands. And, yeah. um, so this is actually a modified version of the Panasonic 12.5 millimeter micro four thirds optics that they right. built into a different package. And it's designed to make a, a proper uh, sort of dual image circle on 30, uh, Super 35. Um, so 6K stereo 3D macro without having a needlessly complex rigs anymore. Uh, and then you could sample down to 4K from there. So there, there's some uses. Super that, interested uh, in seeing how you do, how, how that's successful. Because I mean, I think that that's where some of these stereo rigs, there was a couple of those where you'd get stereo, you know, you could, you could shoot stereo um, with a Canon mount and, uh, at the resolutions we had when they first came out 10 years ago, they, they weren't useful. Um, at the kind of resolutions we're talking about now, they could be very useful. Exactly. Yeah. Because if you're dividing like uh, full HD into two separate yep. streams and even less than that, because there's yep. a bit of crosstalk right in the middle, uh, you're not going to have a whole lot to play with. And 4K, 6K is where it starts to become generally more useful. But everybody Absolutely. is asking for production material in 4K now. So, yep. um, yeah, so that'll, uh, that'll be an interesting play. Uh, stories of the week. Uh, this uh, and some of these we're going to run through pretty quickly. I don't know if there's as much to talk about on them, but the first one really kind of screamed to me as important, even though I didn't necessarily know why. Right. Um, reported on Imaging Resource, the Associated Press, which is to Sony for all photo and video journalism needs. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what hodgepodge of gear that they had to begin with, if people could kind of bring their own camera mm-hmm. or if they had their their set uh, of gear. But now they're switching to uh, mostly uh, A92s and uh, a couple of uh, A7R4s uh, uh, in the mix as well. But all Sony gear, so consistency across lenses, across accessories, batteries, memory, etc., uh, all for the Associated Press. Um, I mean, it's a great win for Sony 
does does it hurt like uh, some level of unbiasedness in photojournalism that everything is consolidated with AP under one brand? I know that uh, the uh, the World Press Photo 2020 shots. Uh, I, I pulled up the the chart, the little pie chart that they show uh, of who's shooting what, and this is not just Associated Press; it's across the entire industry. Uh, Canon and Nikon are still dominating. Fuji is bigger than I thought they would be on such a chart, and Sony is coming in fourth. Um, will this change photojournalism, or is this just consolidation? I, I, yeah, I think it makes sense from a large organizational perspective to say, "Look, we're going to use one system." What's the best system for audio and video? I think Sony arguably is the best system for audio and video. I think it's really, if I was going to rank them, I would rank them as Sony number one, Panasonic number two, Canon number three, Nikon, Nikon number four, um, as far as, the, uh, as their video support and as it integrates into that. I also think that the, um, the, the Sony, some of the higher resolution solutions that they have are pretty compelling. Um, I mostly look at a lot of what we do with, our, our Sony cameras, the higher, the 42 and, and higher megapixel shots um, for photogrammetry. So my needs are slightly different. Um, but I think that um, Sony has just been hitting on all cylinders for, for quite some time and really gone from a back of the pack to front of the pack over the last three or four years. Um, I know that when I needed to do, I, I, I was doing some, um, some work in Iraq and needed something that was pretty com- compact <laughs> and easy to use, uh, low light performance, stills, video, so on and so forth. So kind of in a situation that's very similar to AP, um, the Sony is what I chose, you know, for, to, to do that. Um, even, even that would have been four years ago. So, so I think that it's a, it's a, it's a really strong body for if they were going to standardize on, we want all of our photographers to be able to shoot video and stills. I think it's probably the best, best system for them to do it in. I, I remember uh, well back, uh, about you know, 15 years ago or so, um, Canon had, and I pulled up the reference to it, the um, original data security kit. Um, and uh, previous to that, the original data verification kits that they would have for their pro-level bodies. Um, I think they stopped at like the 5D classic uh, because uh, they were cracked. Uh, and the the uh, secret keys were, were leaked or somehow extracted. And um, this verification information was no longer applicable. Um, it'd be great if Sony, trying to champion this photojournalism win that they have, would would allow. And I know it it, it exists in some form uh, to like check noise patterns in photos to see if things have been cloned and what have you. But for uh, a software tool readily available for both the journalists, the news media, and the general public to properly fact check things, if there was a tool, a website, uh, and, and I want it to be free. I, I want uh, the the freedom of something like this to to allow us to say, okay, has this image been manipulated or not? Uh, and give a probability of like absolutely not likely or, you know, it's perfect to the original. Um, I, I have to admit that I, I'm somewhat con- contrarian in this, in this area where I think it's more important for people to not trust anything that they see. So I think that the chances of being able to really know this and the chances of it being con- it's a constantly moving target, uh, I, I, I think of truth, if we can call it that, as a bit like an object that we're using. And again, I, to go back to photogrammetry, which is probably what I take more photos for than almost anything else, uh, to figure out what some, where something is in the world, um, in photogrammetry, we take pictures of it from multiple angles, multiple angles that overlap. So we get so that the, the software can see where in both pictures there's congruent, and it has to be you know congruent information. And then we slowly build a picture of that whole object by many, many ulti, you know, overlapping images. 
the way I relate that back to news and to evidence and, and so on and so forth is that it's really important to look at news as I'm going to, I've got a bunch of information from different angles, whether it's Fox and MSNBC and Al Jazeera and NPR and all these different ones. I want to hear that news from different locations and I want to see what they all agree on. What they all agree on is probably pretty close to the truth. Everything else is their opinion, you know? And, and so, and, and so the thing is, is that we have to, one single photo should not be a proof of anything to anyone ever. And that was even before we got rid of this, where you, we have to, we, yeah, we could, we can clone out a couple things and clone in a couple things, but where we put our camera, how high is the camera? What is the shutter speed? What is the, um, uh, you know, all of these things change how that, how we as a viewer perceives it. And we've been manipulating that since the beginning of photography, you know, uh, the, so, uh, the, the vulture and the little girl photo comes to mind as a classic example of this. What you choose to exclude from the frame is uh, frame is equally as important as what you include and what story right. you are trying to tell. Uh, even in an unmodified frame of film, uh, exactly. you, you are making decisions as to what is in and what is out. And, uh, and there's a bias there. And I would say that that's as, that is, has as much impact on our view of what that picture is saying as any kind of cloning would or any kind of manipulation that we're doing, we're, we're manipulating manipulating the whole frame when we're making those decisions. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, what I'm saying is, is that we should, as, as I, what I teach my kids, the way I approach things is, yeah, I'm going to have to see that from a couple different angles before I believe it. <laughs> so yeah, so no, I, it's a very there's no point. photo that gets me excited about it. And, and so, so for me, those kinds of security is less important as, as people generally having a, an overall distrust of everything that comes in from a single point of, of, of uh, information. Well, did you hear that North Korea has exactly one case of coronavirus today? Truth in journalism right there, right? There you go. Exactly. <laughs> you only have it from one source. You can never trust that source. So right. uh, good good points altogether on that. Um, and uh, good luck to the Associated Press switching over to Sony. Um, if anybody needs some well-used camera bodies, there might be a bunch on the market uh, <laughs> when they're trying to clear out their inventory. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, uh, next up is uh, the Nikon Z5, the entry-level, uh, as reported from DP Review, uh, entry-level full-frame camera that, and, and I, these words are targeting Canon at this point, doesn't cut corners. Um, and so they've done a great rundown of uh, the Z5 and its features. It's a 24-megapixel camera, only 4.5 frames per second. So that kind of reminds me, we were talking about the 5D Mark II, which was 21 megapixels and 3.9 frames per second as a full-frame camera over a decade ago. But also, it was much more expensive at that time, didn't have any of the novelties and dynamic range that we have available to us today um is a camera like this alex is this something that's going to entice people to jump into the mirrorless market if they weren't considering it if they were thinking you know what i'm the the flapping mirror cameras are still pretty cheap it's a budget thing i can still adapt my lenses i'm gonna ride that wave until it completely hits the shoreline or now uh are we going back out and taking a new stance on on mirrorless from the ground up I think it's 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 a hard push. You know, it's a hard push for for everyone in this area right now because the of the uh, lenses keep you kind of locked in. You know, to to what you're, you yeah, know, to yeah. your to your platforms and and so I think that it's a. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that the the whole photography market is in a pretty fragile place right now um, related to how people make choices um, on what they're going to get, and so. I don't, I think that there's a lot of people, I, I think the market is continually shrinking, not, not growing, uh, of people that are willing to, and, and, and part of it is, is the computational photography is slowly catching up. It's not there yet. I was out shooting with my DSLR, my, my Nikon, um, and I have a Nikon, a cam, Canon, I, my, my daughter was shooting with my Canon, my, 
I was shooting with a Nikon. We were, you know, out with different lenses that, that I have. I've cl- gone back and forth a couple of times. So I've got lots of glass and, mach- you know, cameras. And I, uh, you know, I shot a couple of photos of my daughter and I was like, okay, that's a lot better than my iPhone. <laughs> you know, like you get that every once in a while. Like you just go, right. You know, you know, and, and so, so there is that, that, um, that look, but the question is for the average person, it used to be one of those things that you always would get an, a DSLR or, or something that, um, or mirror, you know, a nice camera so that you could take family photos or you could do those things. And I think that as computational photography continues to accelerate, as we mostly publish on the web, um, these cameras are finding it harder and harder to, to find a place. For instance, I'm sensitive to taking photos on any camera that doesn't have GPS built in. You know, it's oh, really yeah. frustrating for me because there's so many places where I can just go, I won't shoot any behind me like all my behind the scenes are shot with my iPhone because it immediately has all the information. It has exactly where I was. Um, I won't shoot it with anything else because then I have to go find it, you know? And so, um, and so that becomes a whole, uh, you know, I can just type in Zimbabwe and get a whole bunch of photos or, or, you know, or whatever. And, and I can find those photos, um, very, very fast in a way that I can't know any, any other way, unless I'm willing to sit there and put metadata in. And there is some tricks to that too. A lot of camera, like I, I used to there shoot are. with a, a, a 1DX uh, and I bought the GPS add-on for that. And then I was happy that the 1DX Mark II had one built in, although it was less effective in certain uh, scenarios. And it wouldn't default to the uh, GPS add-on as the GPS. They just never built the software in that, even though you could plug right. it in, it was never used. And I, I'm bitter at Canon. I don't think, that, I don't think that camera manufacturers really understand how important that GPS data is. You know, like, like <laughs> I just don't think, I think that they, uh, they vastly, when I see another camera come out, like any camera released in the last two or three years, you know, GPS technology is not complicated or, or expensive at this point. It's in everything. You know, and, and especially if you're getting a flagship camera that has a big beefy battery in it, the yeah. GPS unit is going to be the least power draw of anything in that system. Yeah. But I just, um, but that, it's like a huge resistance that I have. I'm like, you know, to me, from a data perspective, it's a black hole every time I, every time I take the camera out, which I do. I, I, but I, 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 I love shooting in, in the Yukon. I've gone on expeditions into the Yukon wilderness and I could just type in, in, in Lightroom or any program that references that GPS data, the word Yukon. I didn't add that as a keyword. Right. Uh, you know, it's just ref. It knows where I was right. uh, and I could tell where I am at home and, and everything else. It's so incredibly useful. And now when I'm shooting Panasonic, um, they have an, uh, an app on your phone that you can connect via Bluetooth and it will actually embed the GPS information from your phone in the metadata. Um, right. But but I'd rather not have to go through any hoops. Exactly. You know, what, I mean, I just think yeah. I, should just, I should just assume that every photo uh, that I take has GPS information in it. Well, and uh, and the Nikon Z5, I don't believe, has no. GPS information. So uh, there, there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, for $1,400, though, you know, in, in the cost of a professional kit. And, and a camera like this could be very easily used by a professional photographer to shoot portraits and weddings. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. not fast action at the rate of fire. But um, to, to say that the professional kit, including adapters that can take the original Nikon F glass, and yes, it's not going to function as perfectly as native things. I use a bunch of Canon glass on my Lumix cameras, and I don't like autofocus in those scenarios at all. Right. Uh, it, it's there, but it's it's substandard. Um, is, is there enough cheap glass to accommodate a a cheap, uh, camera body, let's say inexpensive and have it be, uh, orders of magnitude more valuable to the end consumer than their phone when the next version of iOS and the next iPhone and the next pixel, et cetera, uh, are going to be leapfrogging this technology continuously. 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's just hard. I, I don't know a lot of consumers now that are buying. And I feel like when, when you get into a professional camera where you're going to start investing in glass, then you just keep going up. You know, so I, I feel like there's a, a, a 2000 and above market that that's pretty um, that can be robust to people doing professional work. There is a, you know, and then below that, I think it's kind of no man's land, you know, that, that you just, you, you know, that there's a really hard, um, you know, you're competing with computational photography on the phones, you know, and, and that's the real challenge. And, and now we get into what's the future of photography, right? Because in terms of professional dedicated hardware, uh, it's all over the news, things going up and down and sideways. Of course, uh, Olympus has announced that they're uh, selling off their uh, camera division to JIP. Um, and uh, there's some great uh, articles, some editorials. I found one from uh, the uh, Nikkei um, uh, Asian Review. Olympus exit foreshadows a Japan camera sector shakeup. That coupled by uh, Rico sharing additional information about its upcoming APS-C DSLR uh, flapping mirror variety that looks like it's something about 15 years old uh, yeah. coming out in 2020. And then Fuji doubling down and opening up their professional services uh, because, of course, they've got more pros, especially in their medium format realm, and, and their right. gear is really kicking it up. But there's so much competition, people coming and going... What do you think about all that in, in a general sense? And where will the industry be in five years? I have no idea. But I think that I think that one of the, where it's going to be. But I think that uh, I, I do think that Sony and Panasonic are in a pretty good position, I think, from 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 where they are, because they've been able to kind of straddle the two um, divisions, or the two different needs of the camera better than most. Um, I do think that it just depends on, you know, Blackmagic is always a, a scary company to be, to have in your field um, because they pivot and move much faster than an average company. Um, you know, they're largely driven by a single person who makes decisions very fast. And so um, it's really, they're really limited by their, just their capacity to keep on building new things. I mean, they're not nearly going as nearly as fast as, as, as Grant thinks. Um, and so, so I think that, um, you know, we could see Blackmagic getting better. It, I think in some ways that Blackmagic could get better at stills than they are right now. And, and that would be actually easier than other people getting better at video. So I think that there's a, there's a chance that black magic could come their direction, um, relatively quickly. Um, I think that, uh, but I still think that Sony and Panasonic are in a pretty good position. I think Canon and Nikon in the consumer market, I, I don't see a business under $2,000. Like I just don't see how cameras su survive with, you know, with the limitations that you get at under two grand. I think over two thousand dollars. There's all kinds of specialty markets that are there, up to a hundred thousand dollars. You know, in these large, very large formats, high resolution, hundred megapixel, fifty megapixel. You know, all these things. There's, there's definitely places that those are needed, and that in that vertical um, business, that's not, I don't think that's going to change. But I think that when we talk about the consumer market, anybody focused like a Rico or or other folks that are really focused on that consumer market, I think could really have some some significant challenges over the next five and ten years. And, and I think that when I see uh, Ricoh uh, producing their, uh, their, their next sort of flagship camera and any additional lenses that they might have uh, in the works, similar to uh, what Olympus is doing, these things are already in the pipeline. There's already a budget right. spent on the research and development of these products, and they're almost ready to manufacture or they are uh, in that process. And right. so you need to get a return on that investment. Uh, why, why would you just let that languish, especially when mm -hmm. you have an installed user base? Um, it's not like you're just starting out of the gate and uh, right. you're, you're, you're wondering whether this is going to work. But um, that's for the stuff that's happening right now. And maybe next year and maybe the year after if something is still far enough along. But I have to wonder uh, if 
if companies like Rico are going to continue on with the Pentax brand, or if they're going to say, you know what, uh, our business is in other uh, office machines and uh, industrial equipment right. and so on. And, and that's where the dollars are, uh, especially when the sales slump during the pandemic right now uh, is hitting every camera manufacturer very, very hard. Um, and it's kind of the end of the line. Uh, and they might find more value in selling off their patents uh, and, uh, you know, divesting themselves from this industry in some fashion and letting the other players kind of pick up the slack. And I'm very curious what JIP is going to do with Olympus, if, if it's going to follow that same path, because um, right. they've got a history of doing that with companies. Or is that micro four thirds uh, ecosystem still so robust with uh, the former Olympus stuff, Panasonic, Blackmagic, and even Sharp and, and a few others playing in that same space um, that that's vibrant enough to keep going into the future to hit that five year mark and say, yeah, we're still going to be producing material. Otherwise, it's just going to be the big players of Canon, Nikon, Sony and Panasonic. And some of those might even disappear as time goes on, too. Yeah, I think it's going to be, there's going to be a big shakeup. I think if we had half of the major players that in five years that we have now, I'd be surprised. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, good on Fuji for saying, hey, we're, we're, we're jumping in and we're taking the, the medium format space and giving right. something more affordable they're, than, than a phase one. Right. Uh, they're, finding a, they're finding a vertical that, that, that they think they can make a difference in and they're going after it. And it's got a little bit more margin than, than a lot of the lower end um, solutions. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, and, and you see cameras like, uh, of course, Canon has the 1DX3 and, and Nikon and uh, everybody has their flagship product that is aimed at either it's a photojournalist, it's, you know, people shooting the Olympics, it's whatever that market is. And right. there's a there's kind of like that's the trophy camera that they kind of have to have, even if you're going to buy into a system, you might not. It's like, it's the reason why like Ford has the GT. It's not because they right. sell a lot of them, uh, but it's aspirational. Just, just, it's aspirational. And right. And so you have to have that. Well, and the hard part is, is that in the past you would buy a $500 Canon, you know, a little rebel and then, or three or three to $500 camera. And then you'd, you'd still buy all the glass and then you'd buy something bigger and then you buy something bigger and then you keep on going up, up that food chain. And the problem is, is that food chain. Now, if we, if we think of it as like an on-ramp, the on-ramp is really steep to get from zero to a, a big camera. And, and again, you're, um, does that camera do all the things you needed to do? And, and that's the big question. Well, and I think that for a lot of people, the question is answered by the phone that's in their pocket, right? No, and, no. Uh, you know, I, and, I bought and the a problem is, is that, you know, you, you know, and Apple has more engineers working on that camera, just the camera, not the phone, than all of Canon. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, like, so, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, like it's hundreds and hundreds of engineers that are working on, on, uh, on the Apple camera um, from a, I think that was listed in a 60 minute thing. They 200, this was years ago, four or five years ago, they had 200 engineers working just on the camera. But the so, important part of that though, Alex, is it's not just the hardware. It's also the software. And it is now it's definitely becoming more and more of that. And, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of those engineers are definitely not the hardware engineers. They're the software engineers. They're how do we pull every little bit of, of uh, quality and out of that, out of that image? And how do we get to a point where we're just gathering data on a sensor and then turning that into a photo and, and how we do that and all the different information that we use to do that is going to be interesting. I mean, if, even if you look at things like the iPad with a LiDAR, at some point that LiDAR is going to be, you know, maybe not in the first generation, but it's going to be stuff that contributes back to, uh, the portrait photography that, you know, a lot of the other things where it's figuring things out uh, at, at even a more granular scale than what we see now. 
Yeah, as, as soon as you uh, introduce things like depth map information that's, right. that's accurate and it's not just a guessing game, then... It's still a uh, you know, it's it, depth map, the, the hard part with the resolution of depth mapping in general, especially at distance, because remember those samples get further and further apart as you move away from the camera. Yeah. Um, that the resolution that they provide along an edge, which is where it really matters, the hair, the, the you know, any kind of soft edges, really is problematic. You know, so the photo, the photo information is still more important, but... There are definitely things around AR compositing and other things that may not be perfect that that stuff's going to allow for. And again, it, there's going other things that it can use to correct it, saying, well, I can have more grain here and less grain here and all these things that are that are available to it. So it's a really interesting, really interesting time. Well, there, there's some interesting cameras out there that have uh, multiple uh, identical cameras, not different focal lengths and things like that, that you could uh, calculate a parallax between the two and yep. create a possibly a more accurate depth map. Like I... I'm I'm strange. I have a red hydrogen. I got one. Yeah, yeah, I've met another person that has yeah, one. We, we can send photos <laughs> to each other. We're the only. It's always yeah. I I actually I bought I bought the titanium first, and so I got the regular the aluminum one, and then I got the titanium one. So I had actually ended up with two. Um, I, I opted to uh, forego my titanium and uh, and went with one of the Houdinis. So I have the uh, what is it zero one one three is my serial number on on this guy, uh, for which the fingerprint. A uh, print scanner has broken three or four times. And, <laughs> right. uh, but the, the, the point of that is the more information that you can gather, whether it's for stereoscopy or uh, whether it's just to build a better picture from an information standpoint. You know, you've seen... Right. Um, uh, Light, uh, which is a company no more, uh, came out with their L16 camera that was crippled by the software. Yep. If if you were able to interpret that information in a way that uh, AI and deep learning algorithms could facilitate 10 years from now, uh, right. or even five years from now, it, it, yeah. it's it's going to make a significant difference. And so the more information that you could put into a product, I think the better it's going to be in terms of what the output is matching a high-end camera um, right. when everybody is just putting them on Facebook and Instagram and resolution doesn't matter. You don't need 40 megapixels or plus. Uh, you just need something to share with friends. You don't even print them out anymore for the most part. Right. No, right. absolutely. And, and, and I think that that's going to be an interesting, uh, and the whole thing is going to be interesting on how we move away from the physics of light hitting some kind of full sensor and it's we're reinterpolating all of that. And that can be heat information and all kinds of other things that, you know, that we have, that we're getting um, that can help composite and, and theoretically correct it, but also just create really interesting photos. Well, yeah. And one of the reasons why we haven't seen telephoto lenses, especially on micro four thirds cameras going beyond four or 500 millimeters uh, is because the equivalent focal length in, uh, in 35 millimeter of, you know, 800 to a thousand millimeters over long distances, uh, especially on a nice summer day, you will have heat distortions in the frame that limit your resolution. There, there's right. always going to be some limiting factor, but that's also an element where artificial intelligence could say, okay, uh, I'm going to sample this exact scene right. for a minute and I will decalculate all of the uh, the, the heat uh, distortions in the atmosphere and create something that is much more acceptable. Well, and if you look at the the kind of, I can't think of the name of it right now, but I have, a, I have an app on my phone that you you turn it on and let it go and it just slowly gets rid of everybody that's standing in front of you <laughs> it's just yeah. like all the people that you just, you just watch it just slowly it just slowly as, as they as they make a part of the frame available it just goes oh okay i got that and it just and, and the longer you let it run the longer it just gets rid of it i, I was in Angkor Wat, cambodia shooting and i just put it on on the path and there's all these tourists and give me a couple minutes and there's nobody 
It's, it's like a, you know, it's an it, it's an empty photo, um, which is a fascinating which uh, you'd you know, never otherwise be able to get. There's yeah, there's exactly. no version of reality unless you uh, you know pay the government oodles of money to close it down for a day for a film shoot or something. <laughs> Where it really have to, it's really oodles. Like it's <laughs> we we've done some work on Anger Watt and it's more than oodles. It's it's crazy numbers. Yeah, well, and uh, rightly so. It's such a yeah, tourist it's, attraction, it's a tourist and, and, and we, Cambodia we, we doesn't even, make and, and, their and GDP it, is tourism. And in the main, in the main, in the main temple, there's no like we. There was no conversation about that. There was just like, no, no, we can't do that. It's not we, we, with 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 work. We got elephant terrace, <laughs> which is still with impressive. Work. It but is, not, yes. but not, but not the same as the main temple. Uh, my my cousin's done some uh, uh, GIS work uh, aerially in Cambodia around some right. of these old temples and stuff like that, and uh, even just to to fly above them to be a somewhat of a, a of a nuisance uh, right. just on a on a general day is is very difficult uh, from yeah. what I've been told. So um, let's let's go on to our final story. I usually save something either humorous, regretful, shameful uh, for the final story in our rundown. Uh, this one came across my newsfeed from CBC, uh, and this is not, I mean, it, it's a new occurrence, but it's something that we've heard of quite a bit in uh, in various venues across the world. I know that there have been cases in the United States uh, involving weddings, whether they be photographers, videographers, cakes. Um, bride denied service from a videographer who doesn't film, quote, homosexual weddings. Um, so, you know... <laughs> As a content creator, you're also an artist, right? You're not like an x-ray technician um, that is just documenting somebody's, you know, broken bone or, or whatever else. Uh, you're trying to impart some of your art into things. And maybe that's as far, as close as I can get, uh, far away from my regular thinking uh, to relate to somebody that would refuse service to somebody that they might not necessarily believe in. Um, but I'll, I'll read from, uh, uh, from their, uh, response that this, uh, this couple had gotten. It says, hi, Kelly. Thank you for contacting us here at Caramount Pictures, which I got to think Paramount Pictures, uh, might be interested in stopping them from using such a similar name, uh, at this point. Right. Um, uh, but congratulations on your engagement. You must be getting excited. I say this with much care because I know, uh, that your union is incredibly important to you, but we do not film homosexual weddings. Wishing you, uh, both good health and peace during these stressful COVID times. Um, Kara Hamstra from Caramount Pictures. Now, I'm mentioning the person's name and, and their company, um, partly because I, I don't know. I, I want to shame them because this, it's a human rights violation at the end of it. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts, Alex? Well, I mean, what's interesting to me, so I have, you know, I've, I've had folks work with me and, and friends and everything else from all different backgrounds. And, and, and the idea of making that decision seems to be, you know, just not something that I would go down the path of what I, I do have things that I don't like to do. It's not, that's not it. But as a, I think that what, what really strikes me with all of these that, that have trouble is this, uh, need to express why you're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I don't like if someone, if someone, there's certain areas that I don't want to get into, um, you know, that, that I don't want to shoot or I don't want to do video. It's, it's definitely not people's, um, orientation. See, I but, won't shoot any weddings. If anybody approached me to, to ask, and regardless of if oh, they were. I shot a 360 wedding. It was amazing. It was so uh, much well, fun. Well, okay. Well, maybe I'd do that. Uh, <laughs> see, see what I'm saying? We had so much fun. It was a great wedding too. And it was like, it was really, it was a really nice wedding. So, so long as you're not dealing with Bridezilla or the mother of Bridezilla. Uh, I, I mean. I, I was a, D, I, I, I was a wedding DJ uh, in my early years. Uh, well, that was a pain for me learning how to do computer graphics. And 
uh, so I've done, I've, I actually once played, um, the electric slide nine times because the bride kept on going, I think they're ready again. I'm like, I don't think they are. And they were like, play it again. I'm like, okay. You know? And, and, and so I, uh, so I, I've been there and, and I guess the thing is, is that I don't see any reason when people come to me on in the cer- certain areas that I don't, and it's not, it's, it's not like I have a heavy opinion. Someone always asks me what my politics are. Cause I shoot lots of different things. And I'm like, my politics are that everybody is in focus and they sound great, you know, like, you know, and, yeah. and, and so I, you know, like that's, that's my politics on things, but, but I, I, uh, but what I will say is that, um, I don't find the, I don't need to insult people who come to me that want to do something that I'm not interested in. I don't have the need to tell them that what they're doing is inappropriate or not something that I want to be part of. I just don't have time. Like, I just don't, I mean, what I mean by that is I, I don't, I, I'm sorry, sorry, the schedule's full, you know, and, and, or, you know, like I just say that the, the inn is closed, you know, <laughs> or I say, you know, or I bid my way out of it. Like, if you want us to do it, this is how much it's going to cost on that day. Yeah. Add a zero thing. to what you'd normally charge. And, and oh, I, they actually accepted that. And some have, well, sure. And some have, you know, and then, <laughs> then I, then I don't feel as, you know, I'm like, okay, I'll do it. Um, but the, I, I don't, I guess I haven't had it. Um, again, there's no reason to, to take that stand to someone, you're kind of asking for trouble. Um, whereas, you know, with what we do generally, uh, we have a limited supply of a limited resource of time. You know, we can't go to everybody's wedding. We can't shoot all these other things. We can't do all these, you know, these other bits and pieces. And, or we just decide we don't want to work that day. You know, there's all these things that can happen that are, that don't require you to insult somebody's, um, you know, lifestyle or, or anything else that you can simply, and, the, so, and I'm sure that there's other photographers that just are not available if they feel bad about that. And, and probably if you tried to figure it out, maybe you'd figure out that they don't like to shoot chocolate or they don't like horses or they don't like whatever that is that, you know, they, that, they they may have whatever decisions they make, but taking a stand and, and having me vocal about it is, is what causes a lot of the trouble because you're insulting someone about something that's very important to them. And it's not, you know, and I think that's inappropriate. So I think that they deserve the shame that they're getting. Um, I think that they probably could have the same thing that they were having before without all the trouble if they had just not been available that weekend, you know? And, and so, um, you know, I think that... It, it, because what it points to to me is someone who really feels like they have to take a stand and they have to be vocal about it. You well, know, and, I, I agree with that to some degree, though, Alex. I mean, not necessarily with what stand they made, but your your brand is your personality. When you are, uh, you know, a wedding photographer, you're you're meeting down, uh, sitting down with people. Uh, going over all of their wishes and their uh, their desires for their perfect wedding and getting inside their heads. You know, it's a psychological experience where you have to uh, you know, play, uh, you know, as if you were them, you know, and, and kind of understand during the heat of the moment, you know, during the dances, what thing did they say in the initial sit down that really meant a lot to them about that? And you ask the right, right. probing questions and you have to build that out and you, your personality is your brand. Um if your personality is such that um, your political views uh, don't match with those people, um, so long as it's not a human rights violation, like something uh, about same-sex marriages or what have you, I don't know if I would, like if I was asked to hire an event and uh, to, to shoot an event and I do events all over the place, I, I really don't do a lot of events, but let's say I did, uh, and somebody wanted me to uh, to go to, uh, something where they were all flying the Confederate flag in the South. And I really didn't agree with that, uh, that message and that mentality. Um, so long as 
what you're disagreeing with is somebody's choice, like their political views, or uh, it's like, yeah, I've, I've I've no interest in slot car racing, and, so and again, I can't I really the, photograph a slot car but, race. But event. if I if I didn't want to shoot, a con- I, and I wouldn't um, want to shoot a Confederate, <laughs> um, you know, like if I if I didn't want to shoot a Bars and Stars uh, um, event. I don't think I would take a stand on it and just tell them I'm not doing this because you're da 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 da. I would just I would just not be available. Yeah. That you know, I you know because the first thing I ask people is what are the dates because I'm booked right now for as an example is I'm a hundred percent booked through February of 2021. <laughs> like I don't have any. There's no more slots left. You know, if I'm doing it, I have to figure out some crazy way to bring somebody else in from the outside to work on it and figure it out. And so, so the so I don't need you know, I don't need to make any excuses up. I don't have any more time, you know? And so, so the, um, but at the, at the same thing, I, I don't think that if someone came to me, I'd, I'd pick a fight, you know, I, and I, and I admit that I, you know, I grew up in the country <laughs> and, you know, they, you know, there, there's a, uh, it's a saying that is not from the country, but it was from Africa that I thought was the most, uh, you know, we were, I was in, um, around a fire. I used to hang out, uh, I used to work in Zimbabwe a lot and I'd hang out at night around this fire in, in, at the bed and breakfast with the security guard and the gardener and the, and, uh, one of the houses, you know, um, people work on the house and so on and so forth. And so we'd all sit around and talk about everything. And the one thing about Zimbabweans is they're incredibly well, re- well read, you know, and very, very intelligent, um, you know, as far as like very well educated. Um, and so you, yep. you can get these really interesting conversations with them. And I, I, uh, so I asked them, what do you think of Bob? You know, this is Robert Mugabe at the time. And they're like, oh, he is ruining the country. You know, this is, you know, this is, you know, talking about how bad he is and everything. He says, why don't you rise up? And, and uh, one of the security guards said, we are Shona. You know, we have been, we have been uh, farmers for a thousand years. And when you're a farmer, you know that if you get into a fight with your, with your neighbor, they're still your neighbor tomorrow. And, 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 and it was, and, and as a person that grew up in the country, it just struck home is that you don't pick fights that you don't have to pick, like you know, because you're gonna still have to deal with them, you know. And so, yeah. and so the, the, so you you learn in where I grew up, um, you know, where everybody's armed, everybody's, you know, everybody's pack, you know, next to each other, you know, you know, dis- disagreements can can get very uncomfortable really fast. That you just learn that if you don't have to pick a fight on that, if you can just find a way out of it, you just find a way out of it. it doesn't mean you lie. It just means you don't want to. You don't, you don't have to say, oh, I don't want to do that. And this is, this is my reasoning for it. And this is a, like, that's a city thing to do in the country. You just go, you just aren't available, you know? And, and yeah. so, and so the, you know, cause, cause you, again, because no one's moving and everyone has to deal with each other for the next 50 years. And so I think that when I see these things, I just look at it as number one is I wouldn't have done that. I mean, I would have just done the, you know, I would have been, if yeah. I was doing that, but, but the, but I look at when people make these stands and I'm like, that was an unforced error. Like, I don't understand. Is why this the you hill you want to die on? Right. Yeah. Like, like, you know, now you're in this big rigmarole. Uh, how did that work out for you? You know, and, and it just, and it was completely unnecessary, you know, to, to, to pick a fight for no reason. And so I know that I'm, that's not a really like straight ahead answer. I don't, you know, I, I think that um, cutting people off because of their orientation is crazy. You know, like, it, I don't think that it's, yeah. it's a, you know, but at the same time, I, I think that if you really feel like you don't want to do that, you don't need to pick a fight over it. You can just find an, a way that, that isn't insulting people to just not, not do it. But they didn't. So what I what I would say is, they meant it as an insult. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like you know, yeah, like, no, no matter how polite how they they're going to be, exactly. But they, they sent a nice email, but it was meant as a dig. You know, like and that's yeah. and and it's that it's that action of of judgment and so on and so forth that really got them in trouble, not the actual what happened. Right. Right. Well, uh, and so they are getting a uh, well deserved backlash, I suppose. 
and that and, that story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that I guess the only thing I, I'd say about that is the, the last thing is just that is um, exactly. I feel like people should be able to say whatever they want, and then and then let the market decide what they're gonna what's gonna happen to their business. They don't have to. It doesn't have to be a law. It doesn't have to be you know those types of things. I think that um, general population makes make will make some decisions in that area. In a general sense, uh, people mm-hmm. complain uh, you know about free speech. Well, yeah, at least in a public forum, you have the freedom to say anything that you want, so long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of others, which in this case it might be. But um, you also. Um, are open to any retaliation and uh, and consequences to you saying those things, right? Yeah. So that's that's what well, that's what we're seeing. <laughs> Before we get into uh, picks of the week, um, uh, where can people find you online? Follow you with all of your wonderful and continuous musings. Um, the best thing the, the the best thing to do is just follow me on Twitter. I mean, I usually put most of the, most of the stuff up that's interesting on Twitter, um, and I link to it. Uh, I you know my my favorite project at the moment is. Uh, my little office hours. So, um, so we, uh, about 300 people every morning get up at six o'clock, uh, Pacific standard. And we all sit around talking about, um, media, media production, how to do it and what to do. And, and we trade notes and so on and so forth. And so, um, and, and I usually post links to that, um, uh, pretty often in, uh, uh, in Twitter. Um, but you can find it at bit.ly slash the office hours with capitals, the office hours, the, you know, the, each word is capitalized. It turns out that bit.ly is case sensitive, which I never knew. So when I, when I made it, so you can do that or you can, um, fo- you know, find it on Twitter. I usually pr- pr- pop it up about once a week. Um, it is, uh, it's an incredible conversation. Do it seven days a week and it's, it's a lot of fun and I, I learn something every day. And there's, there's, like you said, there's a lot of people, uh, and there's a lot of different opinions, uh, especially when you ask a very niche question, um, you'll get people that have five answers to something that you would never find any answer to in any other forum. So no, it's like, and it's so, it's so fast and it's not just like Googling it. It is like people who are actually doing it and, and actually have done it and can talk about the really these incredible nuances. Someone was talking about, audio today and, and one of the one of the folks raised their hand and was talking about the different voltages that go inside of that and what the different voltages mean and how they all work and it was an incredibly detailed conversation and and I think that uh, I've never been in a forum you know there's 40 30 to 40 panelists and they all are kind of they come up in there and we all just we very very rarely are we stumped um, where we don't come up with a relatively good answer for almost anything related to media production it's really interesting I, I had a, a, st- a stumped moment uh, the other day where uh, I don't know I don't know why I keep doing this. I keep treating uh, the company Creative that makes sound cards and audio devices mm-hmm. as a good company that's worth buying their products mm-hmm. um, because uh, their hardware is good, but their software is just so atrocious and broken that it can be a year or two before it's actually usable. And right. so I bought the um, Sound Blaster AE9 because I wanted to have an XLR port directly connected to the sound card without having any extra peripherals and just trying to consolidate that. Um, And uh, so they had a little breakout box with the XLR and some other uh, doodads on it. Um, My microphone wasn't working. I'm using a Heil PR40, which does not require uh, any phantom voltage. Um, It would work when I pressed the plus 48V button. And it would not work when that button was not pressed. Which makes no and sense at all. It makes no sense at all. And so, well, the microphone will work with phantom voltage, but you don't need it. And it's just adding right. a level of noise to the signal that is unwanted. Right. Um, so I, I wrote to Creative and finally got in touch with one of their engineers. And they were using the plus 40, 48 phantom voltage button as an on-off button for the XLR port. 
And yeah. how how the hell does that pass through quality assurance right. and testing and everything else? That should never be a thing. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I, they fixed it like six months later. Yeah, so, yep. yeah. that's great. Uh, <laughs> I, I can bring something to that conversation, even if it's just bitter remarks. <laughs> uh, so let, let's get into the, uh, the picks of the week. Um, what, why don't you go first, Alex? Do you have something you'd like to recommend? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to recommend Affinity Photo. Um, it's something that I've been using more and more for a lot of the work that I do. Um, so I, we've started to move away from Photoshop because we have a bunch of people that need to do photo editing and I'm not really willing to pay a subscription across a large number of people. And so I've been looking at, you know, I, I haven't completely, uh, freed myself of Photoshop. There's a handful of vertical things that I need to do that I've been using it since, uh, it didn't have alpha channel or I had, I've been using it since there were before layers. <laughs> so, um, and so I've been using it from the early nineties. Uh, um, but the problem that I have really is, is that it's the, the subscription model really drives me a little nutty. And so, um, especially as you start having a larger organization that needs to work on these things, it just turns into real money and I don't need to do that because I usually very rarely, there's almost nothing in Photoshop that was added since, you know, version six <laughs> that I really needed. So, um, uh, and that's their problem. That's why they had to go to subscription. Anyway, Affinity Photo in many ways is faster, easier to get stuff done. Um, put, I, I use it a lot to build still graphics for, you know, switching and live and so on and so forth and making, making quick adjustments. Um, I think it's more full feature than getting something like Photoshop Elements. Um, oftentimes you see sales on it, like 25 bucks. Uh, if you're trying to find something that is a little bit more than Lightroom, um, you know, that doesn't more things than that, um, I think it's a good it's a good app to to take a look at. It's, it's and uh, I'm sure that they've got a free trial as well. Most of these companies do. I think they do. I right? just yeah, uh, just to yeah see if it's compatible with uh, with your workflow. Just see if you can yeah. pick it up. Uh, a lot of them are far more intuitive than Photoshop because Photoshop yeah. drags along so much baggage from the '90s that still has to be there. Like if you've ever had to dive into the um, uh, to the actions menu in Photoshop, you immediately see uh, the archaic structures that are underlining the the software application where Affinity. Right. Is, is a newer program. I can say the, se- uh, the same thing about Capture One, about On One Software, about a lot of these right. companies, not just Affinity, uh, but it's a great pick. And uh, I'd say that if you are going to avoid uh, Adobe, um, which like you, Alex, I-, I begrudgingly still need it for certain things like complex mm-hmm. focus stacking and corrections and, and what yep. have you. Um, but uh, if you want to go somewhere else, just give yourself a day. A lot of us have a bit of extra free time right now. Give yourself a day, download them all. And if they immediately turn you off, just go to the next one uh, and right. see which one kind of s- strikes a chord with you and, yeah. uh, and carry that forward. One, one thing about the Affinity Photo, that, that what got me into it was actually not trying to replace Photoshop. It was because I shoot a lot of it with a Theta. You know, I, I love Thetas. They're like my little toy that I carry around and I take these, these um, spherical pictures with it. And the hard part is getting rid of the, uh, the tripod down below. And so what Affinity Photo has is one little thing where it does a live view in 360 and you can turn it so that you're looking straight down and clone the clone out the tripod really easily without it. You know, otherwise when you, oh, cool. in the raw photo, it's wrapped all the way around the bottom. It's impossible to really paint out. When you look at, when you, when you get it down right below you and you're looking straight down on those pixels, you're not, you're, you're basically, it's only your view of the photo. It's not doing any transformation like a polar to rect- rectangular or back. Mm-hmm. And so you're not changing the quality of the rest of the photo. You're just able to paint out the, um, the, you just get the mapping. You're able to paint out the tripod. So if you do any 360 photography or video, it's, it's pretty useful too. 
I know a number of uh, of listeners do exactly that. And so yep. I'll give a shout out to Carl and say, Carl, now you have to use Affinity Photo and anybody else like Carl uh, to uh, to do exactly those kinds of edits. Now, my my pick of the week is uh, is totally geeky and nerdy. Um, did you know that there is uh, there's multiple organizations that have the acronym NSA? Um, one of them is the National Stereoscopic Association. <laughs> and uh, they have a, uh, a 3D uh, convention every year. And normally it's in person. This year it's online and it's free. So I've talked on this podcast a number of times about stereo 3D photography and how I find it so interesting. But it's kind of hard to find a lot of good content, uh, a lot of good techniques. And it, again, we don't have universal ways to view this type of stuff. Um, but uh, if you go to stereoworld.org, their annual 3D convention is now on online. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm, uh, I've signed up, uh, I've even signed up for the little extra package that they have. It's August 13th to 16th. Uh, and I don't know how they're going to do it because I know that in person they would have like 3d projectors and things, and you could wear glasses and easily, uh, peruse the content. Um, I haven't asked them specifically if you're going to have to like cross your eyes or go and grab your anaglyph glasses or some such, uh, to enjoy the content that's being displayed, but I will totally nerd out. I've got somewhere on my desk, I've got anaglyph glasses because who, who doesn't everybody should um and uh just have fun learn a new area of photography that covers all of the areas that you already knew uh but in a different dimension uh, quite literally and, i still uh, i up until very recently i still carried a w3 you know the fujifilm w3 around with me to take little stereo photos i finally decided the resolution was just too old but well that, that's why you need one of these alex you need one of these guys here um, oh, I, what is that? <laughs> and why I do am, I not own it? This, this, uh, I've, for, for nobody uh, seeing the video, because uh, I don't record the video, uh, this is a, uh, a 3D world medium format uh, film camera. A company based in China manufactured these in the early 2000s. And this is the only one that's shown up on eBay in the last decade. And I bought it at any price. Um, and uh, it's got like a built in meter and everything. And, uh, it, and what's uh, the resolution? I guess you can put re- a, any back on it. <laughs> well, the, the resolution is film, uh, but uh, it's got on the back side. Uh, you could probably build something to, to cover that. It's six by six centimeter for each eye. Um, and the now, real, what are the, there's three images. There's three. So one you work? look through. Uh, you look mm. through the top one uh, so that you get a view that's somewhat the delta of the two bottom ones. And the two bottom ones are what is photographed through. So uh, you looking through the uh, the optical uh, pentaprism get a view of exactly uh, what the center between like what would so you get to establish what the stereo window is. Right. And uh, so uh, with this, though, uh, the, the crazy thing is they made like a, a Viewmaster on steroids that yeah. you would take the actual uh, film, it, uh, assuming that you're shooting slides, and you would put that into uh, into this Viewmaster device directly. And my goodness, it's cl- clearer and crisper than reality. Uh, I, I've taken it on photo walks and I've you know done some group photos of everybody uh, in uh, in the shot and I've you know, showed it to them afterwards. And it's like, man, I'm back there last year. I've, the whole gang is back together. It's just a different experience. It I, doesn't. I really felt like that was one of the things missing for the hydrogen camera was that there was just no way to share it. Like, I felt like, you know, we needed a Viewmaster uh, app on the iPhone and some kind of viewer so that you could like 
share ViewMaster pictures that you took with your hydrogen, you know, or in videos and everything else. And yeah, I like somehow make it an anaglyph right away. Just uh, uh, yeah. I, I was I was actually loading my uh, my 3D work that I had done prior uh, onto the hydrogen by hacking the the file format right. because they embed. I can't remember which one they leave as the big image, the right or the left, but they embed the other one in as a 720p uh, photo in the metadata. Right. And so uh, I talked to Phil Harvey, who runs Exif Tool, and uh, he deciphered how I can, you know, replace that with different things. And so I would, uh, you know, copy the metadata from one regular hydrogen photo onto uh, one of my 3D images, uh, and then replace the second image so that the hydrogen right. would display it properly. Um, and that broke. Uh, all of their players in certain ways, like they've right. got the um, the Holopix app on there, and so in right. the initial releases, it would work perfectly fine in like the vertical orientation. But when you flipped it horizontal, right. like it would crop it in a weird way because it wasn't the same aspect ratio. And I got a note from the developers, and they said, "Don, we love your work. Uh, it's being well respected on the platform, but we don't know how you're doing it. Uh, could you please tell us what method you're using of getting your photos on here because you're breaking things and we right. would like to fix them for you. Uh, and even from that standpoint, that was months after the release of the phone. Uh, well, and the and problem was it was all it was all vertical in that phone. I, 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 if I could have shared the, those 3D things with my friends easily or used them, use that data somewhere else or, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that I would have done with that if, if it was just more useful, you know, but it was really more of a I carried around everywhere and I still carry it around to take little stereo photos, um, you know, because I love stereo. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in this convention just because I, I mean, I, I've loved stereo since I was a little kid, little Viewmasters, just thought it was the most amazing thing. And all I wanted to do is create more stuff for Viewmasters. And and I got the W3, I got the W1, I got, you know, like I've always been playing with these stereo um, things and I just haven't found, I'm just like, why can't I just have a real camera that does it? And then more importantly, why can't I have a real viewer that just really does a great job of digitally being able to just go around the world and see stuff in stereo? It's crazy. Do you have a Leica Stemar? I do not. Do you know what that is? No, I do not. So you need a Leica Stemar. But again, they're yeah, really they're... pricey. Uh, uh, it was built in 1954. Uh, Stel for, Stellaris? Or no? uh, Stemar. S-T-E-M-A-R. Oh, got it. Okay. And it is a, uh, a twin lens, full frame camera lens uh, designed originally for the Leica M and the Leica screw mount. Uh, and with the adapter, uh, the M to L adapter or any M to any full frame mirrorless platform adapter, you now have a, uh, a 33 millimeter uh, stereo lens that you can put on your DSLR um, or your mirrorless camera. Uh, and my only complaint like is, is wanting to get, I, I, I wanted to have the same interocular distance. You know, that's what I like about the W3 is that the, the actual sensors, the, or the actual distance between your eyes, you know? And, yeah, and that's so I, I, don't, I don't have the, I, uh, sometimes it's on my desk, but I was using it the other day. They have an attachment that uh, screws on or clips onto the front that has first surface mirrors that expand the distance between the lenses to be the human uh, interocular distance. So they have that. That is part of the kit that came with the lens to begin with. Okay. Um, 
So uh, that makes it far more useful because the 3D effect is far more pronounced and it's more to what we would see the world as. Um, the one thing about that lens, though, is you would have to modify the septum that goes down the back uh, based on whatever camera you're putting it on. Uh, and if you'd like, I've got a 3D model of it and uh, and you can 3D print a new one that fits on all now, have of the Lumix full frame cameras. Have you used, so now that we're going down into the stereo world, have you used, <laughs> is it, what is it, is it the Luma or let's see, what, what is it called? The... Um, Lorio. Have you tried the Lorio? Yeah, the Lorio beam splitters. Uh, they're okay, but they're really plasticky kind of. Yeah. Uh, and you got to really finagle them in like stereo photo view, uh, stereo photo maker in order to set the stereo window properly. And you lose a lot of data as a result of that. Um, right. Well, uh, I wonder now that we're getting these much higher resolution ones is the thing that I'm trying to, you know, that I, that I start to think about there is that, is that, you know, now we're getting, you know, is that something that's more viable now that we have a ton of ton of resolution to work with well especially like i've got you know the 5.9k uh soon to be pro res raw of the uh, s1h that i could shoot with the leica stemar uh which is really high quality mm -hmm. glass if, if i were to show you an image of that uh stop down just a tiny bit it's still pretty sharp for an old elmar design uh it's amazing how good triplets can be uh if they were made right to begin with right and so uh, the, the sensor uh, handles that just fine. And I've done some recording of that of no practical use other than to say <laughs> that I could do it because nobody's asking me to do this stuff yet. Um, right. But it's now much, much more useful when I could do say like just about 3k uh, footage. The trouble right. for me then is I don't have all of the, the niche obscure software tools to properly slice a video in half vertically, one for each eye, and then process that, process that in 3D because that's right. going, that's opening up a total different can of worms. Yeah. Um, so I, I just kind of downscale it and, and I work with some cheap free tools. We but used to have it's now more viable, right? Right. Our, we actually built stereographic tools into conduit, pixel conduit, which is still, it might be still available online and for free. We, uh, Polly who wrote it, put it out there and it would do all that, all the convergence and, and all the bits and pieces in real time while you're looking at a live video. And so it would, we got kind of spoiled by that, but. Well, hey, you, you spoiled by it, but you had to build the tool. So you yep. are, you're allowed to be spoiled by the things that you build yourself. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's end off there because we can keep talking on stereo and nobody's going to be listening. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's been a great chat, Alex. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, you, again, you can find the show notes to this at photogeekweekly.com, which will also include all of the links to where you can find Alex, uh, his pet projects, his musings, where you can find his opinions online. And Alex, thank you again for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everybody for listening. You know what I'm going to say? It's time to stay in and shoot.